is depression funny? I think just any um, point of view expressed in a in a huge way can be funny. And I think depression, because it's like sort of an absence of any point of view in that sense, does become a strong point of view. Doc says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. Here's something you might already know. And if you don't, you should know it. And if you do, it's always good to be reminded. Mental illnesses are not usually something you cure and can then forget about forever. They linger and you have to manage them. For our guest, that's been kind of tough lately. I am Aparna Nancharla, and I am in a podcasting booth in Hollywood, California. Aparna Nancharla has been one of my favorite comedians for a while now. Part of that is her perspective on the world, which is informed in part by her depression. I actually, I love rainy weather. I love when it's gray and cold and, and windy. Because for me, it reminds me why I got in the whole depression game. (laughs) Like, it keeps me grounded. I like when it's miserable outside, because I feel like as a depressive, I can turn to any random optimist on the street and just be like, hey, you're in my world now. Then I offer them some Zoloft because I'm not a monster. <laughs> I uh, no, I do suffer from depression, and a lot of times I do I do feel sad for no reason. But then I remember some of the reasons. <laughs> Aparna has a Netflix special. She's released an album of her comedy. She's acted on shows like BoJack Horseman and Corporate, and she served as a writer on Late Night with Seth Meyers and Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. Aparna grew up in Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. She's first generation. Her parents came over from India. And her life could have gone in a very different direction than comedy. I saw on, I think it was on Wikipedia, that you had an offer to go to West Point to join the U.S. Military Academy. I did. I'm a, a surprise that's in my Wikipedia, but I <laughs> Somebody guess put it it's there. as good a place as any. <laughs> I was one of those kids who applied to like so many schools. I think I applied to maybe like 12 or something. And it really was a range of like artsy, liberal arts colleges to, you know, military academies. I really was all over the map. And I think what appealed to me about that lifestyle was just how structured it was and Mm -hmm. how you were kind of on this set path. And they were like, we make everyone into a leader. And I think I maybe glossed a little too lightly over the military service (laughs) part of it. (laughs) Were you have you always been someone who craved structure like that? I think so. I think I like having a plan. I like making lists and like checking things off. I think it helps me to feel like everything 
fits neatly into a box or there's just like a sense of control over things because maybe with uh, depression and anxiety, a lot of times you feel maybe a lack of power control. So I think I try to find it in other aspects of my life. Following your bliss can be exhausting, actually. Exactly. <laughs> you got to construct the bliss. You got to give it a head start. Yeah, you got to have a bliss plan. <laughs> Where did you end up going to college then? I ended up, yeah, going the liberal arts route. I went to Amherst College in Western Massachusetts. That's where things got ratcheted up in terms of depression. Yeah, I would say in in a more direct way, it was first named in college and first, I think, displayed itself in a way where I it did really disrupt the routine of my life in a way that it hadn't previously. But it had it existed previously? Was there a thing that you later kind of linked to it? I think so. I think even in college when I first met with like a psychiatrist and talked about my experience, she said it seemed like I had experienced like at least a low level of depression maybe from a young age, but it w- it wasn't to the point where it was uh, maybe disrupting things. How did it disrupt things when it finally started to get bad? Mm, I think mainly in the sense that I was having trouble focusing on school at all, and I was withdrawing from a lot of my relationships. So it was really, uh, and I think it first manifested through, I think, problems around eating, almost as like a mask of coping mechanisms. So I think Uh, In that sense, like kind of every facet of my life was a little bit out of whack where it was like I was uh, withdrawing socially and academically. But then I was also already having trouble with like basic things like, you know, eating enough and exercise. So I think uh, in that sense, it felt like something had to give. It turns out college wasn't what she expected or hoped for in terms of how it affected her mind. I thought. My first year of college, I would kind of figure out a bunch of stuff that I was still left lacking answers to in high school. And I think maybe this is common, but a lot of kids after their freshman year maybe are like, oh, this isn't necessarily going to exactly answer everything for me. And I think that was a bit of a existential nightmare for my brain. It got worse and worse. And finally, she had a breakdown. And tried to cover it up. I think I've always tended to not <laughs> to not want to be, be someone making a scene or making a big uh, drawing attention to myself in that way. So I think I think it was essentially a breakdown. But even that, I tried to sort of mute when mm. it was happening. Yeah. Why? I think I just uh, maybe growing up, I I I think my sister was kind of the more rebellious one and was the more outspoken one in my family, and I think that sometimes led to friction between her and my parents. So I kind of was like, oh, I'm gonna do everything the opposite of that. Like I'll be very by the book, don't make a big splash, um, you know, just below the radar and everything or off the radar. You're in your room studying when all the drama is happening outside. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So I think that was my general sense of how to make it in the world. Did that uh, get in the way of your recovery and getting help? 
I think it w- it was the hardest part of maybe asking for help in the first place, or to be like, oh, something's wrong, and I can't just like fake my way out of this. Um, but then once that w- it was named, or like once I was like, oh, I think I really do need to either take time off of school or or you know seek treatment elsewhere. It did. It sort of um, lightened the load of of having to carry everything myself or not being able to name what I was going through. Like, it, I, because I think I thought in my head that if I did, everything would, everyone would get upset or everything would, the structure I had created would somehow crumble. And then because it didn't, I was like, oh, I guess this is okay. She leaves school, takes a break, moves home to Virginia and gets help. Well, because it sort of first manifested as an disordered eating, it was the first order of business was kind of just addressing that and like getting back to like a healthy weight. So I first went to like an eating disorder treatment center and it was actually it. I think I wasn't, you know, as severe a case as maybe some of the girls there. So it was actually I didn't have to be like an inpatient, like I could go home, but the treatment center was like in Pennsylvania, I think. So it wasn't like commutable for me. So I just ended up staying there because uh, that that was what was um, made the most sense. But but yeah, so I was there for maybe five weeks in that program. It became pretty clear because when you're there, they are like working on, you know, getting your weight back up and like what what is maybe causing these behaviors or underlying them. And you meet with like a psychiatrist and a therapist and you do a bunch of group therapy. But I think in in my psychiatry sessions, we learned pretty early on, it seemed like it was a coping behavior for the depression. And I think once that was named, it was pretty uh, like those behaviors resolved themselves pretty quickly, I think, compared to maybe other cases. Did that surprise you that the depression was at the root of it? I think it surprised me at the time and also just like having a name for how I was feeling because it did feel like that thing of maybe if you don't have glasses and you like live most of your life just with the vision you have and then you get glasses later on, it makes things clear. Like I just thought that was how everyone else also experienced the world. So I didn't realize there was something off about the way I perceived things or like that I felt like bad a lot of the time. So now Aparna knew what was going on and she began to see possibilities. And then I was home for the summer and I was like working some jobs. But I think that was when I first went on antidepressants. And I think it was this, I think people talk about how sometimes when you first go on medication, you have like this initial euphoric burst or boost compared to like the level you been experiencing life in before. So I think it actually gave me the like confidence to do a lot of things that I might not have done otherwise. On her list of things to try that summer, stand-up comedy. A friend and I, uh, I think both were like, let's try it before the end of the summer because we were both kind of interested in comedy. And us and some other friends had just gone to this like free open mic night that was near where all of us lived And it was, you know, anyone could sign up. So I think I tried it like maybe the last possible week I could before I had to go back to school. And 
I, I think I it was my 20th birthday, I think, and I definitely milked that for the audience's sympathy. And <laughs> <laughs> and I think I just wrote some bits about, you know, living with my parents and like working summer jobs. And it was very, very much a first set. But I, I think I maybe didn't know at all how it would be received. And I think because it went relatively well for a first set, I think it first planted the seed for me. But then I don't think I tried it again. Like maybe I did like a student coffee house, like maybe twice or something while I was at school. But really, I didn't start pursuing it seriously until I graduated like two and a half years later. Stand-up stayed on her mind, which is kind of amazing that this quiet person who instinctively wants to leave the boat unrocked has this persistent urge to get up in front of strangers and try to make them laugh. Yeah, like I had in high school watched like SNL and Conan and I was like, this, I really like this thing, but I just didn't know what my access point was to it in terms of starting on that path myself. Like I, it just, it, yeah, I think maybe now with the internet and YouTube, it, it's a little bit, you see a little bit more how to get yourself there. But at that time, I think I was just like, I have no idea how you would even begin to pursue that path. Right, right. How did you begin to pursue that path? Mm, I think for me, it was with stand-up. Like after I graduated from college and moved back home, I think I was like, well, if you really want to do this, you should really, you know, start going to open mics regularly. So I think, yeah, when I was back living again with my parents, I, I just started sort of hitting the the scene in D.C. And, and doing like a couple open mics every week. And it was, yeah, it was very much like one foot in front of the other and, and not really having any expectations as to what it would lead to other than just like try this thing and see where it goes. Now, I would imagine a lot of people, if they had heard, oh, okay, Aparna went to this treatment facility, she was there for five weeks, and then she came back to school and she finished up school. So I guess she got all that taken care of. I guess she got cured. Mm -hmm. And now everything's totally fine. I think it was uh, an ongoing management. I think once I went back to school, you know, I still saw like a nutritionist and a therapist and I stayed on my meds. And in some ways, I think even with comedy, sometimes I wonder if maybe it made certain things worse, like with depression, and anxiety, where especially with stand up, you're putting yourself in a lot of situations where you're just being judged actively by other people, which I think is already an underlying fear of mine. So I think it it did make me have to face things that in some sense you could say, well, it's like, you know, directly facing your fear. So that's probably helpful. But then I think it also makes you maybe ruminate too much on like external validation or like only perceiving yourself through other people's value judgment of you. I should note that Aparna is 36 years old. She's been in comedy for a long time, many years spent honing her craft, rising to the upper echelon of comedians, working incredibly hard, spending many years balancing this vulnerability of comedy with the reality of depression. 
It's almost like uh, the way moods are talked about sometimes where it's like a weather pattern where I always feel like sets can be like that too, where it's like some days, you know, you'll get an audience that really gets what you're doing and loves you, but the next day they just might not see it. And you learn to separate it and not take it so personally as you go, but it is it is a little bit like, oh, I've chosen a job where I'm like feel like being my quality is judged like regularly. Yeah. Do you ever, I mean, has that feeling ever made you think, wow, maybe I shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. Maybe I shouldn't be setting myself up for this thing over and over like this. I think so. I think I've gone, I think I've struggled with that a lot, actually, with with just like, is this the healthiest career path for this um, mind, like the brain that I have? And I think I always counter it with, well, what else do you think you would do? Because I think before I found stand-up, my the wall I would always hit was like, well, what are you passionate about? And I would never really know what the answer was. Because I think other jobs I've had, I've felt even more sort of lost or directionless or unmotivated. I think a lot of people with depression find themselves in that situation with their work. I can't get excited about doing anything else, and I'm not sure I even could do anything else, so I'll keep doing this. And so Aparna Nanchurla has stuck with stand-up. And like I've said, she is great at it. But I recently started a new medication, and it's working, but it has a side effect I didn't know about. I get terrible dry mouth, which, you know, perfect for this line of work, but... It did make me realize that a lot of medications are kind of like Greek myths. Like, you, the mortal, you get what you want, but there's always, like, a cost you're not being told about. It's always like, oh, yeah, you'll be more fun to hang out with. But whenever you try to talk to people, dust will fly out of your mouth. You're welcome. That's from her appearance on the Netflix showcase series, The Stand-Ups. What do you do to protect yourself and insulate yourself when you know you're going on stage? You know that uh, it could be a potentially tenuous situation. Like what what armor do you use when you go out there? Uh, I think I well in therapy in the past few years, I've been leaning more towards uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, where which is a little bit more concrete of like if you have this thought, then what is something you could counter it with or what is a way to dismantle sort of the distortion that this thought is creating in your head. So it's a little bit more practical in that sense of like tools to actually de-escalate like your own tendencies in your head. So I think that's helped. Um, been trying to do more meditation and just like grounding myself and like thinking or even just like exercise or getting enough sleep, like they're all sort of basic things that you would think would help and they do help. But it's I guess it's just not a very glamorous uh, thing, <laughs> just managing your brain. It's just like this ongoing, like a plant or like a sort of sensitive plant or something. <laughs> your brain's a sensitive plant. Yeah. With the CBT, the cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. is that something you can employ on stage while telling jokes? Or is that something you think about beforehand or, or afterwards? Yeah, I think it has to be beforehand just because on stage 
it feels like you're maybe in a slightly different zone or you're more reactive or maybe there's more adrenaline so you're a little bit more armed but but I think even on stage sometimes I've I've uh fallen back on some reminder of something because I think in the past few years like my anxiety around performing has gotten worse so in that sense sometimes it even when I'm performing, it's sort of leaked onto the stage when before it would just be like leading up to the performance. And then it would on stage, I could sort of switch into a different gear. But now some of it has sort of followed me on stage. And then in that sense, I will have to fall back on some of those techniques in those moments. Are you in your head when you perform Yeah, I think nowadays sometimes it's still spinning. And I think that is by virtue of the fact that maybe once you've been doing something for a long enough time, you can sort of check out a little bit more than when you're newer and you're a little bit more ramped up uh, by every performance. So I think in that sense, it's been a curse and a blessing in that I can kind of soldier through it easily, more easily. But then in that sense, like I can also be a little checked out. You mentioned that your anxiety is getting worse, so so performing is getting harder. Why do you think it's gotten worse? I think it's probably, I tend to be a perfectionist, so I think it's just that the expectations I put on myself are maybe higher, or my perception of the expectations other people have of me are higher. So I think that has in turn kind of uh, translated into more anxiety or feeling like I'm not able to meet people's expectations. Is that tied in with the the eating disorder, the need for control? I think so. I think it's all, yeah, I think it's all related. Uh, Definitely. It's all the same beast. So the more stand-up she does, the more Aparna Nanchurla's anxiety ramps up. And it draws out the perfectionist need for control that was also at the root of the eating disorder that led to a breakdown before. And that's the beast she mentions. What to do about that beast in a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having a lot of laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a little bit, maybe not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. This is a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. That could be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say or not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. We want to thank all of our sponsors and remind you to use those codes. A lot of time you'll hear me say, use promo code hilarious, use promo code world, that kind of thing. Now, when you use those, not only do you get tremendous bargains, but also you really help us out because then those sponsors say, hey, those uh, hilarious world listeners are really great. Let's keep sponsoring the show. So you get bargains. We get sponsors. It's all really awesome. 
back with Aparna Nancherla. And oh, by the way, also, if you're thinking, hey, John, this is interesting and all, but how does this relate to me? Because I'm not a stand-up comedian. I'm just a person out there in the world trying to make a good impression and trying to get people to like me when I share my thoughts with them and hoping not to get torn apart by hecklers. Well, you get the idea. Real life and stand-up comedy have a lot of parallels, so it can be helpful. Anyway, Aparna, and the fact that her mental problems around performing seem to be getting worse. Here she is performing. This is a recent, this is a recent realization I made in my life. There is no way to pick up pills that you've spilled on the ground without looking like a total human red flag. <laughs> you know, there's just no way to be like, oh, This is what I meant to do, and everything is going great. You know, it's usually more along the lines of, oh, uh, I'm so sorry. I need these. Oh, mama's medicine. You know, immediately turns into a dark one-woman show that no one agreed to attend. Stand-up is, in many ways, the purest form of comedy. A mic, a comic, a crowd, some jokes, go. But could the more, I guess, impure forms of comedy be a little more gentle on the spirit? Is it easier when you're writing? Because you've done a lot of writing work as well. Is it easier being in a room with a bunch of other people, somebody else's name on the, the top of the show, that kind of thing? You you would think so, but... <laughs> But I I feel often like writing rooms are just like neuroses think tanks where it's like, you know, you're trying to be a part of this creative process and make hopefully make something cool with a bunch of other people. But then it's also like hard to not take things personally or, you know, there's just different personalities at work and some people are going to talk more and some are going to talk less. And there's just a, a lot of new ways you learn to spin out. <laughs> yeah. Well, is that I wonder if that's more pronounced for you, too, because so many of those rooms are are loud guys and <laughs> you're not a you're neither loud nor a guy. Um, does that amp up the pressure, you think, for you? I think so. And I've been lucky in that a lot of rooms I've been in don't quite fit that old school model of just like, you know, all loud, uh, like white guys or something like I've been in more diverse rooms, I would say. And but I think you're right. There is like a certain personality type that does better in those situations, either whether they're more extroverted or they just know how to to be in groups uh, a little bit in a more outgoing way. But I think for me, I'm always sort of negotiating this quieter mindset and trying to be like, oh, it's okay to be quieter uh, if if you're talking still when you have something important to say. But but then but then sort of that turning into, well, is everything you say then as valuable as how little you speak? You know, it just turns uh -huh. into different, yeah, sorts of uh, ways to to spin it. You're really popular on Twitter. You have a lot of followers. I wonder how that affects your sort of mental state writing in that kind of forum because it's it's anonymous. It's detached. Well, it's not anonymous. It's detached from people, but then there's also some scorekeeping involved too. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think it's you, 
I think I've always liked it because it sort of removes the, a lot of things that I find scary of like, you know, negotiating directly with other people. Like you can sort of just have a thought and put it out into the world. But then it's like you still, you know, you still, it can still knock you down. Like I think yesterday someone just wrote me like, I think your jokes are getting less funny or something oh, like geez. where I was just, where I was like, okay, well, I already thought that. <laughs> So thank you for naming it for me. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, so in that sense, you're like, oh, gosh, you're still very much open to, to the peanut gal- gallery. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, that's the one tweet that you obsess oh, on. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. then it's like, oh, but what if, about the really nice one? You guys like, well, no. what are they? What do they know? That's just one more person I fooled. This other person's yeah, on yeah. to me. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the jerks are tracking me down. Yeah. And then there's acting, which Aparna has been doing more of. She was in the Anna Kendrick movie, A Simple Favor, TV shows like Crashing on HBO and Bojack Horseman on Netflix, where she plays a young horse who may be the daughter of the show's titular depressed alcoholic horse. It's a really good show. What's your first name? Hollyhock. And your last name? Mannheim, Mannheim, Guerrero, Robinson, Zilber, Slug, Sung, Fonzarelli, McQuack. Got it. Wait, what's your last name? I know, it's confusing. I have eight dads. How'd that happen? Test tubes? No, I was adopted. Oh, of course. By eight men in a committed gay polyamorous relationship. Less, of course. But ever since I was a baby, people always said I looked like Bojack Horseman. That's a terrible thing to say to a baby. And I've always wondered if Bojack could be my biological sperm guy. I guess it's possible. Bojack used to say his penis is like sun-dried tomatoes. Back in the 90s, it got into everything. I came to L.A. to get to She missed out on the camaraderie of being part of the ensemble making that show. Most of the cast is in L.A. and the director and the, and the writers. So whenever I would go in to record or even do a table read, I would just be by myself in New York, like in a sound booth by myself, and then everyone else would be on the other end. So in that sense, it was weird because it still felt isolating in a way because I would always record by myself or, you know, even with the time zone difference, a lot of my actual recording sessions would just be me and the director, just the two of us. So it was almost like I did it in a vacuum and then I later saw how it all came together. But I guess... In that sense, it spoke to how depression can feel sometimes. <laughs> and, and in the process, you're playing a character who's in a world that they don't really feel a part of and your family exactly. is far, far away. Yeah. So it was a kind of meta level. I guess I method acted it. Yeah, you really did. A more comfortable job is on the Comedy Central show Corporate. Aparna plays Grace, a cog in the machinery of a giant corporation. The average employee is half man, half woman. They have one testicle, one breast, and half a vagina. Every year, the average employee consumes 561 cups of coffee and 1,000 coffee. Coffee is a scam. Be an adult, take an Adderall. The average Hampton DeVille employee strongly agrees with the following phrase. If I see a pill, I eat a pill. They smoke 275 cigarettes annually, 97 marijuana cigarettes, and due to some statistical outliers, the average employee does heroin. I would never do heroin. The show is created by comedians she knew, and when she makes it, she can relax a bit. Yeah, I like the group 
aspect of it where you're kind of part of this process and everything works together to, or everyone works together to make this one thing. And I kind of like being just a small part of a a bigger thing that's happening. Um, but yeah, with corporate, I think I got lucky because I'm working with like my friends and, and we we have like a pre-existing rapport with each other. So it doesn't feel as much like just going in with people you might not know as well and, and acting. But stand-up tends to be at the center of a comedian's life. And it's not hard to notice that depression is often at the center of a partner's stand-up. She talks about it. She calls it by name. She doesn't glamorize it or make it scary. It's just a real thing. I'm kind of surprised I met someone. I am uh, what I would consider a socially awkward person. It expresses itself in a lot of different ways. Like, I wear my coat a lot indoors, mostly because I'm cold, but it always sends the wrong message. Like, if you keep your coat on too long at, like, a party or something, someone is always like, you got to take your coat off. You seem uncomfortable and, like, you want to leave. I'm always like, that is accurate. (laughs) I didn't do it in a premeditated way as much as, like, it almost felt like I hit a rut, and then I was like, well, I guess I'll just talk about this because I guess I'm just stuck here for a while. That's why this podcast exists. <laughs> I went through <laughs> yeah. the exact same thing. As long as yeah, I'm dealing with it, might as well t- turn it into a job. Yeah, and it it is like, you know, you, you have your own... Um, I think anytime you channel something into creative work or like your livelihood, there's... It, you have to renegotiate your relationship to it where I'm like, you know, I think one time on Twitter I read about like someone was like, I feel like this person romanticizes mental illness. And I was like, I'm not trying to romanticize it. I'm just trying to uh, exist within it without, I think, fully succumbing to it. Mm-hmm. But I guess I don't know. Maybe to some people that seems like romanticizing. I don't know. Is there any hesitation about making yourself that vulnerable on stage and talking about times when you were unsure of yourself or times when you got knocked down a little bit? I think so. I mean, I think anytime you're on stage and talking about some personal aspect of your life, there's always the chance that the audience won't relate to it or they just won't get it. And Sometimes I do feel that way with like depression, anxiety, where it's like in the room, it doesn't feel like it goes as well. But then it's like later people will be like, I'm so glad you talk about this stuff. So I'm like, yeah, I don't know. It's like it's almost like the people who get it the most maybe don't react the most loudly or something. And which is fine with me. But I think sometimes that's confusing as a stand up to be like, well, I didn't get a huge reaction, but maybe that's okay. It would delight me if this episode of the show was about someone who struggled, figured out the problem, maybe stumbled again, got back on track, and then was fine. Just keep an eye on it. Fingers crossed it doesn't come back. But that's not what this is. Aparna Nanchurla struggles with a chronic disease, and you don't see a lot of tidy, happy endings with those. I've kind of made peace with that it's not going anywhere in in the sense of like I don't think it'll ever go away completely but but maybe sometimes I have an idea that it will get to a place where it's a little bit more muted than it is now yeah it's almost like when I first went on medication is almost like this high point in my head and I'm always trying to get back to that And it seems like it's almost like you're, 
And I guess sometimes people compare stand-up to this, but you're like chasing that initial high Hmm. all the time. Have you changed your meds over the years? Yeah, I feel like I've been in sort of an ongoing, like, try this until it stops working, now try this. Like, I'm sort of in this never-ending dance with what works, because it seems like everything either wears off or it doesn't work as well as it initially did. Are you hopeful about the future? I think so. I mean, I think I'm just, I I think I'm as hopeful as like (laughs) a a depressive person can be in that (laughs) I'm like, I'm still here. Yeah. That's something. (laughs) Well, I, I mean, the way you write your comedy, the way you perform your comedy, I think makes people feel less alone. I mean, you talked about people approaching you and saying, oh, I'm so glad you said something about that. Anytime you you Mm. talk about this kind of stuff, you are helping people by talking about it. Yeah, I think that's always um, helpful to remember. And I think it is, I am always like very humbled by when people are like, oh, that I listened to, you know, this set or I heard you on this interview and it really helped me, you know, negotiate where I am at in my life. And I think that always helps break that, uh, for lack of a better term, like sort of the self-absorption you can get into with your own mental illness where you're like, no one else gets this. It's, uh, yeah, it's like kind of ironic because it's like I'm talking about it. And other people are connecting to it. And yet I still am like, no one understands. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's one of the the first things I hear from experts is like, no one is very special. No no one is a uniquely damaged person. Somebody else is just as damaged. Aparna says she's glad that people look to her work for some relief from their depression. As for what she looks to for her own depression, she says, sad music. I think it makes me feel understood. And sometimes I'll listen to more upbeat music. But I think, yeah, music I, I have found is something that direct uh, can affect my mood in a very, like, a short attention span kind of way where it's like even in the span of a song, I feel like I can feel several different moods or like it helps evoke uh, feelings in me more um, immediately than maybe other art forms. What do you know now that you wish you knew a long time ago about mental health? Um, that's a good question. I think I think I Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think I wish I knew that uh it is it can sometimes feel um like pretty seamless like it's almost like you don't know where your own brain ends and your mental illness begins and I think that's something that I still sometimes have trouble remembering where it's like if you're having a thought it's not because it's true (laughs) always it's like sometimes it's part of you know your depression or your anxiety even though it very much seems like it is the reality that you're experiencing 
I, uh, I am in therapy right now. Surprise. Uh, yeah, I'm healing. We're all healing. I, I, went, I went not too long ago, and this had never happened to me before. There was a real-life dog sitting next to my therapist, which was like a new look for her. And she saw me look at the dog, and she was just like, oh, the dog's not for you. And I was like, what? I thought this was a safe space, you know? And then she was like, oh, but you can use him if you want. I was like, okay, that didn't explain anything. <laughs> Perhaps raised more questions. I did some further inquiry. It turns out it was a therapy dog who was there for an earlier client. And then his ride wasn't there yet. So he's just gonna sit through my session like a bored king. <laughs> like, okay, we have a lot to talk about today, starting with whatever this just was. But I was also kind of like, I don't need your sloppy healing handouts, you know? I'm fine. At the same time, my eyes were like, come to me soft. Let me bury my pain in your fur. Aparna Nanchurla is on Twitter at Aparnapkin. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Christina Lopez is our web and social media skipper. Kate Moose is executive producer. Technical director this time around, Corey Schreppel. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller, who has a new album out called The Messenger. Listen to the song I Used to Write in Notebooks on that album. It's really great. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you or your loved ones. Starting a conversation can be awkward on a topic like that, but Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. Hilariousworld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter. And hey, come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation happening over there with your fellow Thwadballs. New shows being formed. It's a good place to hang out. On our next episode, the hilarious Echoes of Depression. We catch up with three former guests and learn how talking about their depression in front of me and all of you people has changed their lives for the better. What kind of things have people said when they've approached you about it? Oh, that they they handle things just like me, and that uh, that I inspired them to start pursuing whatever it is they wanted to pursue, despite whatever was holding them back, stuff like that. So, I must have been really inspiring. No, I'm, just... <laughs> I'm John Moe. Bye now. Would you say I'm a hopeless case? Say it ain't so Would you say I'm a sad clown 
Tell me something I don't know Would you say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know 